are listening to TomCast, Sydney Theatre Company's podcast series in which our Associate Director, Tom Wright, discusses the context and themes of shows in our current season. Episode 1, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. One of the interesting things about uh, the play Les Liaisons Dangereuses that came out of a period of British history, um, which is Thatcherian history, the time of the of Margaret Thatcher, and it might sound odd to go to the 1980s as opposed back to the 18th century when you're talking about a play, but that's actually one of the key things that the um, play is actually in some ways dealing with because um, the original uh, epistolatory novel form of Les Liaisons Dangereux was actually dealing with a society that was about to come to an end, was about to fall apart. And so you could call it, if you would like, you could almost invent a subgenre for the whole thing of calling it a, a pre-guillotine play. Because all of the characters, both those that um, die within the course of the play and those that uh, survive, the one thing ha they have in common is that they're all part of a class that anyone, both the readership and the theatrical audience knows, are about to get swept away by the forces of massive economic change and massive social upheaval. In some ways there's something about the this idea of um, positing the idea of a decadent class or a group of people who've lost their core moral centre um, and the way in which they are in turn going to be subject to um, a massive sweep of history that for some reason seemed to appeal particularly in the 1980s when this particular version by Christopher Hampton was brought to the stage. Um, initially it was a sort of subsidised success, a, a sort of an RSC style success which ran very um, proudly and in a very popular fashion on West End stages and of course it had its sort of reverberatory productions all through the English speaking world as, as well. Well, um, and including, of course, here in Australia where um, productions were done in almost every capital city. So at the time, it felt like it was a slightly sneaky, slightly decadent look at a, another age. And of course, the much more famous Hollywood film, Dangerous Liaisons, which is based upon this with Glenn Close and Michelle Pfeiffer and John Malkovich was made in its wake. Very much part of, in some ways, a similar sort of set of discussions about the 1980s, about ideas of what it is to have a, a public morality and a private morality, ideas of um, sort of popular culture um, started um, seeping into this story. And so you began to get remakes with Sarah Michelle Gellar and so on and in sort of populist uptown Manhattan and fashions, but the point being, in that latter part of the 20th century, Les Liaisons Dangereux seemed to actually fall somewhere between the desire for sort of high art um, class and sort of gossip. Something interesting has happened, I guess, in the intervening sort of 25 to 30 years, and, and now when we've decided to sort of revisit it, have a look at the play again and see sort of how it works as an active adaptation, but as a piece of theatre as well. And the um, director of Griffin Theatre, Sam Strong, uh, suggested to Kate and Andrew that this might be a useful play to revive and look at again, partly because it has that popular antecedents it's um, worked so well in the past, but more importantly, it functions very well as a good vehicle for two actors because it's a, in the Beatrice and Benedict fashion, it's a dialogue play between masculine and feminine principles. Um, so w when we knew that um, Hugo Weaving was very keen to act in Wharf One for this year, it seemed like an appropriate vehicle for Hugo Weaving and uh, uh, Pamela Rabe to play uh, and come back to. But Sam's production's not 
um, in the same spirit as those earlier 1980s productions. It's not aspiring to necessarily paint a kind of picture or, and place it quite so specifically in the history of that sort of period of the 1780s. It's um, it's more um, this production that he's um, developed for the STC is more a production which is designed to think uh, more obliquely about classicism. So he's got his um, designer uh, to create a kind of a beautiful world which on one level could feel like it's evoking the sort of aristocratic salons of the original Lacroix um, novel but on another level uh, the work that's being done could just as easily be a suburban reception centre. The idea is that um, this production in some way tries to make the class background and the aristocratic background of the original play into something more of a, a problem. And so although it's not, whilst you wouldn't say that this particular production is in any way tries to set it in contemporary present day dress or, or clothing, by the same token it's not quite as clearly set back in that sort of 18th century aristocratic um, mien. As, uh, in the way as the, some of the previous productions have. So it feels once again like you, something's happened in the course of just the last few years that Les Liaison Dangereux, the theatre play, has gone from being a piece of sort of boulevard entertainment into something, well if not quite a classic yet, at least a very good play that can withstand a new fresh look. Um, having said that, the production has a um, has a, a great deal of fidelity to Christopher Hampton's text. There's, the text. There's been no excisions, no incisions, there's been no extirpations, there's been no emendations. It's fundamentally the, the published play and on occasions that sort of lends itself to some sort of very interesting um, meditations uh, on the nature of sex but also on the nature of power and you realise that in the end in true sort of Thatcherian fashion that this is a, a wonderful play about the way in which um, power is not just something wielded by people who are given massive social or military power, but it's actually endemic to the whole human species. And so in some ways what we're seeing writ small here is um, a, a template for the abuses of power within human relationships. It's not quite clear who's playing a game with whom in this one. But the one thing that is clear is that human beings are the pawns in the uh, in this particularly large game of of the powerful. Uh, the, the the novel and the original play um, are, is unusual in one extent, and and that is that um, it deals with a class of people that are so idle that they're fundamentally bored, and the way in which they manipulate the lives, loves, and feelings of others to the point of of death comes from a sort of a competitiveness born out of a desire to fill the void, which is um, in a sort of strange and perhaps even oblique way feels like it's sitting in counterpoint to sort of the great works of uh, 20 years previously or 30 years previously, the sort of great Beckettian or Pinteresque works where the void is filled with meaninglessness or uh, meditations upon that meaninglessness. Instead here, the void gets filled or the time gets occupied by amorality or immorality. Uh, but there is still nonetheless a sense of that there is something being awaited by these, this particular um, odd couple, this odd couple that played in this play by Pamela and Hugo. It, so at the risk of extending it slightly, it's almost like you've got this sort of um, French aristocratic Vladimir and Estragon waiting for um, a Godot who potentially will never come. But of course, as I alluded to before, what is going to come is the guillotine, you know, and, this, and um, to a certain extent decapitate this whole system of behaviour.
But there's many more things operating in this as well, and it has a number of things that an audience can find curious to observe. One of the first of which is, of course, Christopher Hampton's a, a very, very, very adept playwright and very adept at um, construct, taking from one text a background and, and uh, manufacturing it into something else. So the original novel is written in letter form, which is not unusual. In fact, for, particularly for early novels in the early sort of Western tradition, novels are written in the form of letters one to the other. And a letter is by nature conversational. It has an implicit within it. There's the addressed and there's the addressee. And um, the, there's, there's also the addresser as well, the, the, the writer. But implicit in it is that there's a set of um, conversations and opinions, some of which contain information that the writer wants the um, reader to have, some of which is withheld. Um, and so when Hampton adapts a, a group of letters or a group of um, texts that resemble letters, he has to find a way to get across both what's inside, um, what, both what's said and what's left unsaid. So it's a far more complicated um, text in some ways than the original. The um, what's left implicit or what um, can only be found out later um, has to be sort of spoken on stage in theatre and theatre's relentless desire for um, immediateness or the, its capacity to speak clearly about what's happening on stage at any given moment means that um, some of the more gentle or satirical edges of the original book are, are rendered a little bit more overt and that in turn changes the way in which character works. But fundamentally, in the end, in spite of all of those fairly sort of big and, and, and moral themes, the play um, actually, I, I think, works extremely well and has worked extremely well all the way through history as a, um, a beautiful, well, all the way through its relatively limited performance history, I should say, as a, as a beautiful love story as well. And that's one of the reasons why it's worked so well and been such a popular uh, piece, because there's a, a sadness to the text, a very middle class sadness, but a sadness nonetheless, which comes from the idea that um, the, the Marquis is, as a character, is incapable of love. And um, there's that sense that actually all of these characters, but particularly uh, to the, the protagonist and her sort of, her matchmate, her, ma her opponent, so to speak, the, these two characters um, are fundamentally in the end able to actually reconcile their own vulnerabilities. They've become so used to their abusive relations and relationships that they're um, incapable of actually understanding the true nature of their feeling. And so in that sort of now quite famous final scene where um, Hugo Weaving's character is required to just endlessly say, it's beyond my control. You have that sense that actually what you're dealing with there is um, on one level a kind of a, a, a pruned psychology, a psychology that's actually incapable of genuine human feeling and has become reduced down to the status of automaton no, and in, in a sense no longer a human being. Um, but also what you get, get a sense there is that actually it raises some core, big, late 18th century sort of philosophical questions, but in a very late 20th century way. What, one of which, for example, might be the extent to which the thoughts that exist inside our own heads are truly our own. What this um, novel and what this play adaptation seem to be suggesting is that to a certain extent a large part of our social behaviour and the way in which we sort of engage with each other, particularly in the battle of the sexes, is sort of preordained and practised uh, 
behaviour that we've learnt elsewhere and doesn't truly come from within. So for those who like to think about sort of French philosophy and French literature, it's a wonderful discussion in a way between sort of Rousseau and, uh, and Diderot in a way between sort of um, uh, different visions of sort of what innocence might be and what corruptibility might be. And um, there is a kind of a hideous tragedy at the end when the character of Cecile in this production played by Geraldine Hakewill, it's not on stage, but she's spoken about in absentia in true sort of epistolary fashion. She, um, you realise that she's going to be condemned to spend the rest of her life um, sort of literally and metaphorically behind bars, trapped in a convent. And it's made quite clear that a convent in this case is not a life of um, uh, study and meditation and prayer. On the uh, quite the opposite, it's a form of sort of control of female sexuality and a place in which sort of women can be removed from society into a kind of extended perda, um, and in which they're going to be sort of um, have all of their net desires, both natural and unnatural, completely kept inoculated from the greater world. And of course, the, as I mentioned at the top of all this, the irony of all that is that one of the beauties is that, that particular form of patriarchy, the convent and all of its sort of accompanying um, forms of suppression uh, will also get swept away by the rising sort of um, events of the um, revolution when it comes sweeping through the various institutions. And so you sort of find yourself wondering at the very end of this play what will become of um, Cecile, still a teenage girl and, and um, the lessons that she's learnt or has failed to learn may well in some ways be the, the relic or whatever that um, Le Liaison Dangereux leaves for its audience, a speculation about what it is to learn or what it is to not learn and what it is to win and what it is to lose. So Sam Strong has done a, a, a quite extraordinary, fairly exquisite little production and it's, it's traditionally this play has been staged in proscenium arch theatres around the world but to do it in Wharf One means that certain qualities are brought to the fore to a certain extent um, it feels like you're looking in on a jewellery box, a jewellery box of history or in another way it feels like as an audience member you're actually sitting inside this particular room in which the conversations take place. But the room you realise in Sam's production is a fluid construction and on certain occasions there are people entering the room whilst someone from a completely different scene is still leaving it and you realise that actually in some ways the room that is, has been um, designed um, for this production is um, comes to represent um, us all and you know in a way or certainly represent um, a society that is moving from the bourgeois to the aristocratic. Uh, and one way in which that takes place is that it's a porous back wall through which you can see antechambers or hear activity in antechambers. You can hear the serving maid laying out the cutlery or you can hear uh, an unseen figure playing the piano or you're vaguely aware that doors are opening in a room through a room through a room, which is a remarkable effect and um, beautifully achieved in a way which sort of gets in a quite a small space of Wharf One the sense that actually um, what's being inhabited is both literally and metaphorically a, um, a, a house of intrigue. And so it's a, it's a, a as a result it becomes a kind of a, a pleasurable act. It's like watching a beautiful game of cards unfold played by two very, very clever people. And so on one level, as you're increasing joy and entertainment at the, at the wit and the seduction games that are played, I guess that's matched or has an almost concomitant sense of revulsion at the kind of way in which human beings are treated as pawns in the whole endeavour. So it's a 
can be read on any one of a number of ways, this particular text. You could read it as an exercise in giving some very fine Australian actors some wonderful and delicious roles to play. But on another level, it's actually a, a, a kind of an interesting play from an Australian point of view, if only because it's a product of the, more or less exactly the same decade that um, produced white Australia itself. And Christopher Hampton's adaptation is a product more or less of the decade that produced STC. And so 1780s and 1980s sort of sit as interesting sort of um, sites for thought. And in this particular 2012 production, maybe there's a, um, a set of footnotes to both those eras and yet something distinctly 2012 about the whole thing. Maybe in the sort of the post Glenn Close, post um, 1980s era, um, the ways in which sort of some of our fine actors in this production, such as Jane Harders or Pamela Rabe herself, or for that matter, um, Justine Clark or Heather Mitchell, the way in which they can construct notions of what it is to be feminine in a highly prescribed fem feminine environment, might actually feel like some of the more radical possibilities in Christopher Hampton's adaptation can take place.